Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for 20-plus years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. In fact, most of our listeners know who Sharon is. Our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNA. Sharon, what time is it? It is time to wake up, Jeremy. Time to wake up. I like it. Well, I think today we have a continuation of our historical series. I know. I'm super excited. And again, I'm amongst greatness in the room, as usual. We have with us today Miss Sandra Ouellette, who needs no introduction. But Sandy, you had something wonderful happen. You want to tell us about what happened over the past week or two? Well, yes, I was just shocked, but I was awarded an honorary doctorate, a doctor of science from Wake Forest University. And I found out about it in April when Dr. Riker, the program director, stopped by the house at eight o'clock one morning to give me that wonderful news. And all I could think about was, do I have to say anything? Because it was going to be the uh, the whole Wake Forest graduation, which is at, on a Monday outside and thousands of people there. But it did turn out that there were seven people that were awarded an honorary doctorate, only two in science, a physician from Stanford and myself. And the others were Doctor of Letters, Doctor of Law, and so on. But we were part of the uh, platform party, and it was just wonderful to look out over the quad. And as far as you can see, was graduates and their families. And it was just probably a peak experience in a lifetime. So now I'm trying to figure out the practical use of a doctorate. I mean, I don't want to do anything that's not politically correct. And I know that when you... Oh, well, that's like, like that's ever bothered you before. (laughs) So I do know that, that an honorary doctorate, you know, generally you aren't addressed as doctor unless it's an honorary doctor and you can use it, but it has to have H-O-N, honorary. It has to be Mm. clear Mm -hmm. that it's an honorary doctorate, and I think that's okay. So I was talking to Dr. Riker about it, just so I don't make any mistakes, and he said, well, don't you ever forget Dr. Maya Angelou used it every single day. (laughs) You know what? You're exactly right. right. That is true. I didn't even think about that. And she got her honorary doctorate from what, Wake Forest, Wake Forest, yes, Wake Forest. It, was, right. it was really good. So um, I'm really pleased. That's probably the peak of a, a very long career, five decades. And I think they really 
paid attention to nurse anesthesia. And I thought, oh, how far we've come when I was struggling there at the medical center in 1988 just to keep the program open when so many of the programs mm-hmm. were, were closing under the political pressures. And then to have a little note from the president of Wake Forest thanking me for the legacy I've left in the medical school, I thought, We've come a long way since uh, since that time. Well, congratulations, Dr. Ouellette. Dr. Ouellette. And this just adds to a long bio who, I'll tell you, Sandy, I look at your bio, uh, program director. (laughs) You feel very inadequate, don't you? I really do. I mean, (laughs) you know, International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists, I mean, past president ANA, NCA, and I mean, just... Amazing. You've done a wonderful job, and that is. I've learned along the way, Jeremy, for everything you say yes to, you always gain more than you give. You really learn a lot. Really. So I would encourage our listeners, particularly our new graduates, to just never say no. You know, just get in, get in the game. And uh, you will learn a lot in doing all these things. Great words of wisdom. Absolutely. And uh, another person on the line with us today is Evan Koch. And Evan has also had a illustrious career, but now, did you say half retired, Evan? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I am half retired. I am half retired. I have the best of both worlds. I can still call myself a nurse anesthetist, but I can still pursue my, my efforts of becoming a professional golfer. Ah, there you go. There you go. It's always good to have goals, right? That's right. So, However unrealistic. So Evan's got a, a great bio put together for us as well. A 1987 graduate of Kaiser Permente program of nurse anesthesia in Los Angeles. You've been president of the California and Idaho associations of nurse anesthetists, region five director of the ANA. And one of the reasons that Evan's on with us today is he was instrumental in founding the AANA archives now called the John F. Guard Archives. And that leads us into our topic today, and that is the relevance of nurse anesthesia history in evolution of the profession. And I think that's a very befitting topic, Sandy. Um, You know, as the profession has evolved to master's, to doctoral education, some leaders and folks in the industry are concerned students today are not taught about the history and the milestones of nurse anesthesia education that have made you guys who you are. So we're going to start with Evan here and ask Evan what some of the reoccurring themes found in nurse anesthesia history. Well, thank you. Let me first just say that I'm very grateful for being a part of this discussion. And congratulations to Sandy for her degree. She's led a, a truly illustrious career. And I want to thank you and Sharon for your podcast. If anybody can leverage history and bring it into the lives of nurse anesthetists, they deserve a real pat on the back. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're able to do that. Well, thank you, Evan. Oh, you're welcome. As for the question, yeah, after I had begun to read about our history, it occurred to me that certain themes seem to recur, principally that Surgeons have been our our greatest advocates since day one, and that continues to this very day. For instance, the Mayo surgeons are thought of as having essentially invented nurse anesthesia by placing people like Alice McGaw and Florence Henderson in charge of surgeries that 
had never been performed before. In fact, I think it's safe to say that without their provision of safe clinical anesthesia, it wouldn't have been possible. Other examples would include people like George Crile at the Lakeside Hospital in Cleveland and Vern Hunt, who trained at the Mayo Clinic, but relocated to Los Angeles. And I can discuss them in more detail if you want me to, but I think it's also worth pointing out that the entire Southern Surgical Association voted unanimously to condemn anti-nurse anesthetist activities when they started to crop up after World War II. So we've had enormous support from surgeons over the years. Well, in more than one way, (laughs) I would say. I think that continues in daily practice every single day. Surgeons know that we give safe, quality anesthesia care, and I think they'll always be our advocates. Well, you're right. I was going to say that most of our listeners are probably nodding their heads thinking, they're surgeons who are our greatest advocates who I work with on a daily basis. In fact, it's an old cliche that perhaps you've heard before that if surgeons didn't want nurses giving anesthesia, there would be no nurse anesthesia. I believe that. I believe that. So tell us a little bit about Surgeon Graham's speech and what that meant for our yeah. profession, Evan. Yeah. Steve Arts Graham is a great example of a very prominent surgeon who is a great advocate for nurse anesthetists. And also, which is pertinent to this discussion, prodded the AANA to cultivate its own history. Now, as perhaps you know, anesthesia, modern anesthesia was discovered in 1846. Graham himself was a 20th century surgeon um, who had a great interest in thoracic surgery. He spent some time in Europe during World War I, and that was before they really understood the physiology of intrathoracic surgery, and they lost a lot of patients, the mediastinal shift and cardiovascular collapse. Well, over the years in St. Louis, where, where Evarts Graham settled, he partnered with Helen Lamb, and together they were able to successfully perform the first world's total pneumonectomy. He was a very, very prominent, famous surgeon. He became the uh, president of the American College of Surgeons, and he was the chief of surgery at Barnes Hospital in St. Louis. So in 1946, Harvard University sponsored a centennial celebration of ether, and they invited just four speakers to their celebration, and Graham was one of them. The speech he gave is a famous speech. You can find it on the internet just by typing in ether and humbug, H-U-M-B-U-G. And it's famous because it really stunned the anesthesiologist. He pointed out that there's enough humbug in anesthesia to go around and it really needs to stop. Now, what do I mean by that? Humbug is really a 19th century word for fake news. That is to say, something that's willfully deceptive. And there was a lot of humbug in anesthesia at the outset, at the discovery of anesthesia, where the dentist who first demonstrated ether had disguised it. He had put a colorant and an odorant in it so that he could patent it and make money for himself. But as we all know, 
humbug and fake news has been perpetrated in anesthesia history throughout the 20th century and to this very day where anesthesiologists and others have tried to erase or denigrate the contributions made by nurse anesthetists. And this had figured very heavily in the mind of Evarts Graham. He had tried to recruit an anesthesiologist to work with him at Barnes Hospital and together with Helen Lamb, but none of them over 30 years would agree to work together with nurse anesthetists. And he was tired of it. And he told him about it in this speech, and it's well worth reading. Well, I think um, I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, I've never heard of I, it. I've not seen that either. And I, I try to really dive, uh, take a deep dive into history, but I'm going to have to find that myself. And, you know, Evan, you're so absolutely correct in terms of history's in the eye of the beholder. And a lot of it is kind of fake. If you look at any textbook that is edited and written by physicians, the first chapter is always history. But by reading that chapter, you would never know that a nurse anesthetist ever existed in the United States or anywhere else. And we know people like Olive Berger with the Blue Baby operations at Johns Hopkins. Out of about 480 of these procedures, she did well over 200, closer to 300. The physicians only administered anesthesia for 41 of these cases. And She did over half of them, and the rest were done by six other nurse anesthetists. And like you say, uh, the first uh, pneumonectomy, uh, Helen Lamb. Look at Betty Lake at Boston Children's Hospital. She really created pediatric anesthesia there. And Robert Smith came along much, much later. But she was the one that showed the best anesthetic at that time for a correction of a tetralogy of Fallot with cyclopropane. But it's in our literature. If you go to nurse anesthesia textbook, you'll find all this wonderful information about how much nurse anesthetists did contribute to the early development of anesthesia, but not out of our realm. And that's why I'm so glad that we're getting ready. The ANA is moving very strongly towards publishing volume two of Watchful Care that will take us from 1989 to the current date. Because if we don't write it and record it. It will be written for us mm-hmm. and it may not be correct. Well, if you're not defining your narrative, somebody else is. That's absolutely right. So I hear Helen Lamb's name bantered around here. So she's the mother of education. That's so right. why don't you tell us a little bit, Sandy, about the role that educators have played in our history? Well, Helen Lamb was there as a charter member of the founding of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists in 1931. And uh, she really became quite interested in the educational piece of that. And as I look back, and Evan, you may have a thought on this too, you know, it was American Hospital Association that helped this young little organization grow and thrive in the early days. And I believe from what little I read, it was this group of people that was really pushing and championing higher education for nurse anesthetists and standards, nurse anesthesia standards. And of course, Helen Lamb really took this and ran. And it was through her influence that we had the certification for nurse anesthetists since 1945, I believe it was. And then we began to recognize a standardized curriculum so that you threw accreditation and, and our programs were accredited 
1952 and recognized several years later by the U.S. Office of Education. So today, the fact that our students are eligible for traineeship grants from the federal government is because we are recognized by the U.S. Office of Education. So Helen Lamb was the one that we remember most. Wouldn't you agree, Evan? Oh, definitely, definitely. Helen Lamb was the foremost. In fact, Helen Lamb foresaw the need for doctoral education as long as I was 1938 or something like that. Boy, that took us a long time, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So she made mention of it in 1938? ahead of her time. Wow. Yes, in 1938, she wrote something, something to the effect that the benefits of doctoral education would bring university affiliation and respect to future nurse anesthetists, and that was her hope. And, of course, it took, what, 75 years for that to really That's become right. a reality. Then we'll have the entry level in 2025. Took there a long, long time. Wow. She was definitely a visionary. Hey, Sandy, you know, over the years, yeah, I think it- educators have had various threats and obstacles. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, a program director is like, they're juggling all the balls in the air at one time. They've got to certainly take care of the students and make sure they're appropriately uh, educated and clinically prepared. But they also have to make sure that they have a happy faculty, a clinical faculty, nurse anesthetists and anesthesiologists. And now as we've moved into the university, that has created another whole group of people that we have to work with. So it is a very hard job. You know, as a program director, when I would be seen in the operating room, it always sort of shocked me when someone would say, oh, you're working today. Well, I work every day as a program director. In fact, it was the hardest job I ever had. But yeah. You're not talking about me being your student, no, right? No, okay, no, good. No. You were always, always easy, Sharon. Always yeah. easy. Yeah. <laughs> And she laughed. But, but, you know, we've had trouble in terms of keeping our programs open. That particularly was true after direct reimbursement was successfully legislated in 1986. Sixty programs closed between 1982 and 1989. And we're so ingrained now in the universities. I don't think that that is a big threat. We have 121 programs today. But I tell you, we have to watch those clinical sites, because we graduate, the numbers we graduate because of multiple clinical sites. We have almost 1,800 clinical sites. And what we do as a profession and the message we send can enhance or threaten these clinical sites. And so I I think it's very important to keep that in mind with what we, we do. But of course, we had master's education and all the programs were offering a master's degree in 1998. We wanted it to be in 1994, but we didn't quite make it. And then, of course, many programs now are already offering a doctorate, but it will be a mandate in 2025 for that class graduating, and it'll be a three-year program. So that means that every student admitted after 2022 will have to be in a doctoral program. So, Evan, alluding to what Sandy talked about earlier, some will say that CRNAs have not advanced anesthesiology. I would contend that's not the case. But could you talk to us a little bit about some contributions that nurse anesthetists have had that you found in all of your studies about our history? 
Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first contribution that nurses have made was the refinement of anesthesia to make it safe for the first time ever. You know, before nurses entered anesthesia in the 1880s and 1890s, anesthesia was perilously unsafe and surgery itself was threatened. But once nurses entered it and devoted themselves to it, using nothing more, Sharon, than their uh, native intelligence and their wits, because nobody really understood pharmacology and physiology at the time, they made it safe for surgeons to advance surgery. And all of a sudden, you could have the surgical treatment of appendicitis or the surgical treatment of thyroid disease. And believe it or not, they were doing craniotomies and ophthalmologic surgery that, that long ago. So that's contribution number one. I think contribution number two that Sandy alluded to was the guarantee of a quality education for nurses in anesthesia. That is not to be underestimated. Anesthesia education used to be really haphazard and unsafe. There was nothing at all formal about it. All you really re- that was required was a, a hospital that needed anesthesia, a, a willing instructor, and a willing student. And that, that was the way things were until the, at least the 1950s, I would say, and perhaps even later. But on a more modern sense, I like to think of our efforts to combat substance abuse, drug diversion, as a contribution to the advancement of patients under anesthesia. We confronted that after our president, Jan Stewart, took her own life very tragically, and it was later discovered that she had been a a sufentanil addict. And we resolved to do something about it. We established, thanks actually to Jan's daughter prodding us to do it, we established a wellness program, which ultimately got around to attributing addiction and other diseases of that nature to stress. And I'm not sure that we can say that it's had a great impact on the incidence of substance abuse, but it, it is a great stride and it's extraordinarily popular. And I, um, I think it's going to live on. Well, Evan and Sandy, you know, CRNAs are considering calling themselves nurse anesthesiologists. And, you know, we've talked about this a great deal on the show. Is this something new or kind of has the search for an identity, a professional identity? Have things like this happened before? Yeah, I'd like to start that, Evan, and then you can certainly chime in. This is a reoccurring theme as well. And the most recent that I have remembered was when we were in um, Boston in 1986, and there were some military nurse anesthetists that had put an issue forward that we should be known as nurse anesthesiologists. So the ones that made that recommendation were not there. They'd all been deployed, so they couldn't even speak to it at the time. But there were a lot of questions asked at that particular point in time. And finally, someone asked our legal counsel, Jane Blumenreich, to comment on the issue. And he did say that in order to get this done, it would require a change at all the states. It would cost millions and millions of dollars to really change the name. And if we don't change the title, is what I mean. If we don't change the title, it's in the transcript. He said, we're going to have confusion. We're going to have nurse anesthetists, and we're going to have nurse anesthesiologists. And that's what we have now with this movement. We have two different titles, don't we? 
because the INA has recently, with their most recent documents, changed all the descriptors, including certified registered nurse anesthetists and certified registered nurse anesthesiologists to titles. And so I was talking to a colleague about that today. So we have two terms. I think that's terribly confusing, as Jane thought in 1986, to everybody we come in contact with. I don't see how having two titles can strengthen us at all, whether it be with the legislatures or who it is. And the other thing is, just because an organization such as ANA says now it's a title, it's not a descriptor, to me that's pretty meaningless. It really doesn't have any impact until all of our 50 states through their state boards of nursing and the National Council of State Boards of Nursing say, yes, you're no longer a nurse anesthetist, you're now a nurse anesthesiologist. So what do you think, Evan? I would begin by saying that I have mixed emotions about it, Sandy. I was initially of your mind and opposed to changing our name to nurse anesthesiologist, largely because I know that if we change the name, we're going to spend the next 40 years fighting to get it implemented in all the state legislatures, and we're going to start a decades-long fight with the physician anesthesiologist over priority over the name. But I've kind of changed a little bit. I'm glad to see that we're not going to be called upon to vote on it so soon without thinking about it longer. I also try to take the long view as a history buff and recall that the anesthesiologists themselves were once called anesthetists, and they invented the term anesthesiologist in the 1930s simply in order to differentiate themselves from what we, the nurse anesthetists, were doing. They didn't want to be associated with us at all. And I guess I recognize that there's a certain hypocrisy to that, and I don't want to see us repeat that. But on the other hand, I'm open to the argument that there are so many different kinds of anesthesiologists now. Why not just call ourselves nurse anesthesiologists? Yeah, I think that the big thing is I could be in favor, I think, if there was a full state analysis in terms of what the cost is going to be. Because, you know, if I saw a set of slides that was presented at mid-year assembly about potential unintended consequences and what it's going to take to actually get this across. And it was many, many dollars that we probably don't have. So I think, you know, certainly the debate is fine. And remember that what we would have been voting on this year was not a title change. It was a change in the name of the AANA. And again, that seems to be premature because, you know, if we change the name of the AANA to American Association of Nurse Anesthesiologists, then there's 21 states that define anesthesiologists as a physician. So do those people, if they can't use anesthesiologists, are they going to be nurse anesthetists now that's a member of the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiologists? I think the real issue is having two titles. You know, as my colleague today that I have a great deal of respect for said, just pick one. Well, I think the message that I take away from this is 
people think this is the first time this has been discussed. Yes. Yeah. And obviously it has not. And I think that is what is important for us to take away from in this historical series because everybody thinks they've created the wheel. Right. <laughs> and Absolutely. that wheel has already been created. And that's why we need to be so aware of our history so that you know what has gone on in the past. Whenever we were fighting AAs in North Carolina, we thought it was the first time. Well, they tried to bring them in at Chapel Hill in the late 80s. So this had been done before. So we need to know our history to move forward. Absolutely. They say those that cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. There was a uh, saying that I saw published. In fact, it happened to be the 60th anniversary, I think, of the World Federation Societies of Anesthesiologists. And somehow it just stuck in my mind. And what it said was, you live life going forward, but you understand it looking backwards. Mm. You know, and I think about, you know, the rear view mirror is small Mm -hmm. compared to the windshield. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're really living life going forward, but there's parts of it we cannot understand and be best prepared to address these issues if we don't know what's happened in the past. Wow. Amazing. That's right. I think it's important for students to know that nurse anesthesia is a distinctly American phenomenon. We discovered it. It was born here and cultivated here. And on a practical level, it's important to know what we did and how we got to where we're at. You know, American nurse anesthetists are the best educated, the most numerous. They enjoy the widest scope of practice. And it should be mentioned that they are the best paid nurse anesthetists in the world. And there's reasons for that. And it's important that we all understand that. You know, and I'm so glad you brought that up, Evan, as we just celebrated yesterday the 30th anniversary of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists. And everything you said is absolutely correct. We are the only ones that have mandatory certification accreditation of our schools, recertification. And as you said, our salaries are significantly different from our nurse anesthetists in even developed countries. And, you know, when I was president of IFNA, people used to contact me from these countries that wanted to come to the United States and work. And some of our members that wanted to go to some of the other countries like Switzerland and Norway and so on. And I would tell them, you know, you'll have to get in touch with the uh, Minister of Health or the Minister of Education to see if this is even possible. But you'll also have to be fluent in the language. And you also will have to understand that your salary is probably going to be less than a third of what you're making now. And the cost of living is probably going to be higher in a lot of these places Mm -hmm. where you are. So everything you mentioned, I echo, Evan, is absolutely correct. Hey, Sandy, why do some... Yeah, thank you. SRNAs get a DNP while others get a PhD. I mean, what, okay. is, what is the difference there? In our own faculty at Wake Forest, we have both DNPs. This probably going to be the most numerous. And then we have the research PhD. I think it's where their interests might be. If you look at the highest echelon of academia, it is the PhD. And so if people really have more of a interested research, for example, mm-hmm. then they would be drawn to that. The DNP is a practice doctorate, and it is a very strong academic credential. The MD is a practice doctorate, and it always surprises me that 
some of our anesthesiologists that are opposed to nurse anesthetists being doctors, many of them don't care if you have a PhD. And that they just don't want you to have a DNP because it's the same thing they have in terms of a practice doctorate. And I think that, you know, since 85, 90% of our people are practitioners, probably the DNP is more attractive to the lion's share of our students. And eventually it'll be our programs will be offering this. I think the thing we have to be very careful about is not to dilute the generic curriculum of what it takes to produce safe, competent nurse anesthetists. Because I can tell you, academia and many of these universities do not understand it. And if that program director is not there fighting to keep those airway courses and to keep those pharmacology courses, it'll be diluted with what I call fluff stuff. And it's not going to be good for the graduate. So that's the only thing that really bothered me going into a mandatory doctorate. We have got to watch Well, you were on the task force for that. That's right. I co-chaired the doctoral task force that INA established around 2006 with Denise Martin Sheridan. And Dr. Betty Horton was our staff. She did a wonderful job. And uh, we had a lot of real strong debates about this, but that was pretty much agreed upon by everyone, you know, that we have to maintain what it is we are. We can graduate people with the highest degree of PhD. If they can't maintain an airway, they're not going to have a job, period. And, you know, when I'm meeting with pre-anesthesia students, sometimes they'll ask me, well, you know, don't you think we're going to get paid a lot more now since we have this doctor? And I said, no, I don't think so. You know, hospital administrators and groups that hire us They don't care what your degree is. They want to know, are you certified? Are you recertified? Are you safe? And what is it going to take for you to come work for me in terms of salary? You know, we're hired because of that, not our doctorate. Mm -hmm. Well, and here I go getting mine. But (laughs) Yeah, and you should. As young (laughs) as you are, Sharon, you should. Um, And I encourage all the young people to really think about it because so much of it can be online now. Yale didn't get that memo. (laughs) I understand that. I understand they didn't. And uh, and, uh, many of these, if you're already CRNA, it's a two-year program, and Yale didn't get that memo either. No, they didn't get that memo (laughs) That's a a three-year program. Oh, my goodness. Well, Evan, we've talked a lot about history of CRNAs. Are there some vital pieces that we're leaving out that you'd like to bring up right now? Well, that's sweet of you to ask. There's plenty that we haven't talked about, but if I might, I'd just like to ask Sandy a question, and I bet she knows the answer to this. There was for a long time a portion of the nurse anesthesia curriculum that pertained to the history. It was part of the specified curriculum, And in fact, there were questions on the certification exam based upon history. And then at some point, that disappeared. And I wonder if she has any insight into that. I do, as a matter of fact. In fact, there was an article in Anesthesia Analgesia, I think it was around 2012, where they had investigated how much history in the residency programs physicians are being taught. And it was really not very much. And so that got my attention that perhaps we should do a study on nurse anesthetists in our programs, our 121 programs. 
So I teamed up with our PhD researchers in the faculty, and uh, we sent a survey to our programs. And so we've got that information now. But as we were doing this, I went and looked deeply as to what has happened. You know, when I was a program director early on, up until really the late 1980s, history was a part of professional issues, and it had to be taught. What I found out was the Council on Accreditation, which tells us what we have to teach and how many hours and so forth, has a course on professional issues. But from 1990 to 2013, there was no mention of history. Now, as they revised the master's curriculum and standards, they didn't include history as a separate entity in this professional preparation piece. But I was pleased to learn that when they developed the doctoral standards in 2015 and then revised them in 2018, they have an area called the practice doctorate standards, and they are now specifying history as being a part of that again. The other thing I found out is all questions on history were removed from the certification exam in 2013. And the certification exam is based on a practice analysis. So they will survey so many active practicing CRNAs and try to decide what should or should not be on that. So around 2012, they find out that this was really a low priority with those clinical practitioners out there. So there was very low support for professional issues. Now, from what I understand from talking to people at the NBCRNA, they discussed this a whole lot, and they even thought about having a fifth domain that would include history. That was rejected, but in the um, standards and all, they do encourage legal wellness, mm-hmm. ethics, and that kind. But in the doctoral standards from the COA, they put history back in there. And I think this is going to be so helpful for programs, just what we're doing here and the other links to this history piece because this podcast will be very, very helpful to busy program directors. They don't all have to reteach it. I mean, it's just there right. for them. But does that answer your question, Evan? So no questions since 2013 on the CERT exam and not in the master's standards for COA, but it is in the doctoral standards. Yeah, you do answer the question. And perhaps we should be optimistic that with history back in the curriculum, perhaps more people will be cognizant of it and incorporate it into not their practice analysis on a daily basis, but into their existential kind of bearing. And it'll help perhaps to resolve some of the identity crises we've had over the years. Yeah, because now, you know, from 2022 forward, everyone will be in doctoral programs. And it is a requirement now Mm -hmm. in the doctoral standards. Well, we have gotten quite a few messages from program directors and they have put the link to the podcast for historical series on their blackboards so Mm -hmm. that their students are listening to it. So hopefully we'll get more of our history out there going forward with these new SRNAs coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Evan, I understand that CRNAs have published a journal continuously since 1931. Are there other advances made by CRNAs like that that we can kind of hang our hat on? Well, the journal, our journal is certainly a a big contribution to the community. 
It's the second oldest journal in anesthesia that I'm aware of. Only anesthesia and analgesia is older than that. And it's safe, I think, unfortunately, to say that nurse anesthetists have not done the bench research and even on much of the clinical research that has supported our practice. But that is changing now, Jeremy, with the preparation of people at the doctoral level they're able to conduct the kind of research that actually does refine practice and move it forward. So that's not so much a um, a historical question. It's one that's evolving right now as we speak. That's great to hear. And I I know there's a lot of other accomplishments that CRNAs have had and maybe not gotten the credit for that. But, you know, I think as we kind of talked about, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And uh, that seems to be... Yeah the theme for CRPs. And I'll tell you, you know, you talked about fake news. People aren't opposed to rewriting history. And a good example I have is when ANA celebrated its 75th anniversary in 2006, and we had our meeting in Cleveland. All of a sudden, the American Society of Anesthesiologists was celebrating theirs in 2005. They did not begin, their charter says, they were chartered in 1931, but they went back and said... No, I think it was 1938. Was I mean, that's right, that's right. We were in 1931. You're right. It was really 1936, Evan, I think. But at any rate, they moved it. And on their charter, it says 1936. But, you know, they moved it back to 1905. I thought that was very interesting because that's when the new... I think it was the New York Society mm-hmm. of Anesthesiologists was formed in 2005, but the ASA was formed after us. We formed in 1931, and I believe, Evan, they were in 1936 because I have a quote in terms of their major goal, and by 1937, they had already established the goal of eliminating nurses from the field, and if they couldn't eliminate them, then every anesthetic would be medically directed by them, and that has not changed. You have to give them credit for one thing. They have put their eye on that gold, and they have never lost sight of it. And they've been consistent. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So do any of you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share, Evan? Then we'll let Sandy round us up. Well, thank you. Closing thoughts. I hadn't composed any in my mind. I would just reiterate what I said at the outset, which is that I'm grateful that you guys have launched this podcast, and I wish you all success with it to the extent that we can can leverage history to bring our community of nurse anesthetists closer together and educate them about our past and educate them to the importance of history, I compliment you guys. And I also, of course, restate my compliments to Sandy for her, her long, illustrious career and her recent doctoral degree. Well, thank you very much, Evan. And um, I would just like to do a shout out to Jay Horowitz, Rita Rupp and Dr. Mara McAuliffe, because at the death of our icon and legend, Ira Gunn, they took it upon themselves to collect all of her publications, her emails, everything she had ever written, and they put it into a book, Ira Gunn's Legendary Writings or something like that. And uh, it can be purchased from the ANA bookstore, and it's a real good book to have. But there's an article that she published a long time ago, and it's about knowing your roots and your identity based upon your historical roots. 
It was published in CRNA, the clinical forum, which is no longer a publication. It hasn't been for a long time, but that article can be found in that book. And a few things that I find, again, and I have to remind myself, I look over it every once in a while. But she said, many of the problems existing between anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists are based on ego and economics, mm. not quality of care. I thought that was uh, pretty insightful. And she went on to say, identity problems must be dealt with internally. An important key for resolving group identity problems lies in taking pride in the roots of the profession and the values, attributes, and contributions that have been made by our professional pioneers. It is essential that we know our history, including our accomplishments, and reaffirm them and retell them with pride. They need not to be embellished. We have a wonderful, wonderful history to be proud of. And so I would encourage people to try to get a copy of that book and at least look for that one article. It's really quite good relative to the relevance of history for our profession. Well, we've learned humbug. I wonder wonder if Trump would change his word fake news to humbug going forward. (laughs) That will be your assignment. (laughs) We will let you have Well, I did put in for a job at the White House, you know, but they didn't hire me. (laughs) So, Evan, I think you had something to add. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to add to Sandy's comment. I own a copy of, of the Ira Gunn Nurse Anesthetist book. And every time I think I've come up with some brilliant new insight about our history, all I have to do is look in that book and I find that I thought of it some 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, she did have it. In fact, she has a section in that book, What's in a Name? And mm. many years ago, she was talking again about nurse anesthesiology or should we call mm. ourselves something else? But it's... Um, it, you know, it's all there. It just keeps going around and around and around. Running in a circle. Well, yeah. Sandy, yeah. Evan, we really want to thank you guys for being on and this wonderful history series that we're doing and perpetuating out there for CRNAs and SRNAs in the future and can benefit from both of your knowledge. So, Sharon, I think that's a wrap. And we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and make sure and leave us a review. Until next time. Indeed, it's a wrap. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. 
Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support.